right, if you have a Bible, go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. Let me tell you what we're going to do tonight. We're going to take a little bit of a pause from our series in the book of Judges to address a question that the book of Judges has kind of brought forward, which is, why does God command violence in the Old Testament? Okay, and so we're going to address that question tonight, and then what we're going to do at the end of the service, after I get done preaching, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together, and then at the end, we're going to have a time of question and answer, and so if you have a question that has come up during the Judges series that you want answered, uh, I think we have a number that you can text to get that. I think that'll be on the screen here in just a second. A number that you can text uh, to uh, send in a question, and then whatever questions you send in, I will try my best to answer them at the end of the service. I think we'll have that up there at some point, okay? And so you text in a question about judges or this sermon, and at the end of the service, uh, we will answer that question. So I know we've We've walked through the book of Judges, and um, there's a lot of really interesting stories. Like over the last several weeks, when I've got done reading the text, you guys have like laughed, and it's been awkward, and (laughs) there's been some uh, kind of violent and funny things that have happened, right? So we had a couple weeks ago, uh, Ehud stabs Eglon, and he's so fat that his belly envelops the blade and then he loses control of his bodily functions and uh, uh, that's how God, you know, puts down the Moabites. And then we had, uh, uh, last week, we've got uh, Jael who takes a tent peg to the head of Sisera and drives it into the ground and that's how... Uh, God takes down the Canaanites. And we're going to see in the coming weeks in the book of Judges where uh, Samson uses a donkey's jawbone and kills a thousand Philistines and all kinds of uh, really uh, violent things that happen in the book of Judges. And the question we want to ask tonight is, so what are we to make of that, right? So like, why does God command violence in the Old Testament? It's a really important question that we need to ask. That may seem like a theoretical question or like a, like a philosophical question to ask, but it's a really important question. Like it's a very practical question that you need to be able to answer, okay, for many reasons. One of the reasons why you need to be able to answer that question is to be able to defend your faith. In the last several years, there have been high-profile preachers. If I told you their name, you would know who they are, who have recommended distancing ourselves from the Old Testament to save Christianity and to be able to help us on mission. They say we need to downplay the Old Testament and we need to kind of promote uh, the apostles and the eyewitnesses who saw Jesus you know, raised from the dead and we need to kind of put away the Old Testament because, and they say, the faith, the faith of the next generation depends on us distancing ourselves from the Old Testament. They say that, uh, for example, there's uh, uh, people who've been called the, the four horsemen of the new atheism. 
One of them, these four horsemen, is a man named Richard Dawkins. And Richard Dawkins says that the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. He is a sadistic, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. And when your 19-year-old daughter goes to college and one of her professors says that, that the God of the Bible is a violent, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, she's not going to be able to withstand that attack. And she's not going to be able to answer her professor when he says that. And so this, these preachers say we need to distance ourselves from the Old Testament. My answer to that uh, challenge is, you know what? Let's train our 19-year-old daughters and train our 19-year-old sons on how to answer that question when they go off to university. Let's, let's teach them what the Bible says. So you need to be able to answer this question to defend the faith. You need to be able to answer this question to share your faith. Several years ago, I was in a uh, a Muslim country in the Middle East and I was on the streets and I was going along on the streets sharing my faith with people, sharing about the gospel of Jesus Christ and I came across one young man and he said to me, uh, this Muslim guy said, the reason why I don't think I should pay any attention to Christianity is because the God of the Bible is so violent and he called on his people to kill other people in the name of his faith. And I was like, you're a Muslim. Um, doesn't your God, hasn't your God <laughs> called on your people to kill other people in the name of your faith? And he said, well, he, and that guy's told me, he said, that's not real Islam. That's not what I believe. And so he said, that the reason I'm not a Christian, the reason why I don't pay any attention to your faith is because the God of the Bible is so violent. How are you going to answer that charge? How are you going to answer that challenge? How are you going to share your faith when people say that? We've got to be able to answer this question. And then you need to be able to, answer this question because of your own faith. Like, let me just be real honest. We're going to read here in 1 Samuel 15 here in just a second where God tells Saul to wipe out an entire people group, including the nursing babies. And if I'm real honest, when I read that, my first inclination is to kind of wince at that and be like, are you serious? Like, why is that happening? Why are you saying that? And so we've got to be able to answer this question. Why does God command violence in the Old Testament? We see this throughout the book of Judges that we're going to be walking through over the next several weeks. We, threw it, we see it throughout the Old Testament. So we got to be able to answer it, all right? So we're going to answer it here from 1 Samuel chapter 15. If you would, please stand to your feet out of reverence for reading the words of God. We're going to read, starting there in verse 1, 
and we will read selected verses down through the end of the chapter. This is what God's word says. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the, Am the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told to Samuel, Saul came to Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Now go down to verse 26. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, 
so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So we're going to answer this question tonight. Why does God command violence in the Old Testament? Here's the reason. Let me give you this up front and we'll walk through it. God commands violence in the Old Testament because of John 3.16. God commands violence in the Old Testament because of, God, of John 3.16. God so loves the world that he sent his son so that the world would not perish but have everlasting life. And that's what we see here in the Old Testament. So we see John 3.16 shares with us the mercy of God, his love for the world, but it also shares with us the judgment of God, that God holds the world accountable. John 3.16 tells us that those who are outside of Christ, that those who do not believe in Christ will perish, that there will be judgment, accountability for them outside of Jesus Christ. That's what we see here. The Lord tells Samuel to go to Saul, and he says to Saul here in 1 Samuel 15, devote to destruction, destroy the Amalekites, all of them from the king to the nursing babies to the livestock, do not let one of them survive. Now, the reason why he tells Saul to do this is three times in the Old Testament. You're gonna look at this in the book of Exodus, in the book of Numbers, in the book of Deuteronomy. The Lord says that the Amalekites will be completely destroyed because when the people of Israel came out of Egypt, when they were slaves who had been freed from Egypt and they're wandering around in the wilderness and they are weary and they are vulnerable, the Amalekites attacked them in Exodus 17. And because the Amalekites attacked them when they were weary and when they didn't have any defenses, the Lord says, I'm going to destroy all of the people of Amalek. And so God pours out his judgment here on the Amalekites for their sin. And we see this throughout the Old Testament when the people of Israel are violent against other people in the Old Testament, it is God pouring out his judgment on them. We see this uh, in Joshua, for example, when, when God tells the people of Israel to go into Jericho and to wipe out uh, the people of Jericho, the Bible tells us all the way back in Genesis, God says, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And so I'm gonna give them centuries where I'm gonna let them rebel against me, but there's coming a day in the future when I will use my people to pour out judgment on them because of their sin. And that's what God does in the book of Joshua. And so we see this over and over and over again. Justice will be done. As Samuel says to Agag, as we read here at the end of the chapter, your sword made women childless. And so now God will make your mother childless. He is going to pour out judgment. He's going to pour out justice. There's going to be an eye for an eye. What you've done, God is now going to bring it down upon your head. 
And so if you are upset about the violence in the Old Testament and the judgment in the Old Testament, you don't just have a problem with the Old Testament, you have a problem with the entire Bible. You have a problem with God. You have a problem with hell. Because the Bible tells us that God is the judge of all the earth and eventually he will hold every single person accountable for what they have done and what they have thought. So if you have a problem with violence, you have a problem with God and a problem with judgment. And here's the deal. Every single one of us in this room want a God who is just and want a God who is a judge. That's why we ask questions like, why is there so much evil in the world? Why is there so much injustice in the world? Why isn't God stepping in and doing something about all of the problems in the world? When you ask those kinds of questions, what you're saying is, God, I want you to be a judge. But the problem is, we want God to be a judge when we want, for the specific sins that we want, but we don't want that light turned on us and our sin and what we've done to rebel against God. The Bible says God is going to judge the world. And that doesn't just include terrorists who fly planes into buildings or murderers who kill innocent people that God is going to hold all of us accountable. Jesus says in the New Testament, he's gonna hold you accountable, he's gonna hold me accountable for every idle word that we've spoken. So we want God to be a judge, we just don't want him to hold us accountable, but the Bible says he's going to hold us accountable. Here's the deal. It's not just that God is uh, patient. He's given Agag and he's given the Amalekites hundreds of years in their rebellion before he pours out judgment on them. And it's not just that he's patient with us and he gives us decades of our life before he pours out judgment on us and it's going to eventually come. But here's the question that I want to raise and that I think many of you would have with 1 Samuel 15, okay? Agag, he made women childless by the point of his sword, so he's getting what he deserves. But what about the babies? They didn't do anything. What about the mothers? They didn't go out to war and kill Israelites, and so why in the world is God telling Saul to kill them? What about the babies? What about the innocent generation who had nothing to do with what happened all the way back when the Israelites came out of Egypt? Here's what I want you to understand. God commands violence in the Old Testament because of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. We see here in this story, not just the judgment of God, not just the wrath of God, 
but we see the mercy of God, the love of God on display. Now, one of the ways we see that is all throughout the Old Testament, you can look at every single instance of this in the Old Testament. All throughout the Old Testament, when God pours out violence, when God pours out judgment on people, he always offers a way out. He always offers mercy for those who are willing to accept it. So you go all the way back, Noah and the flood, when God pours out his judgment on the world, he saves Noah and his family through the flood. Think about Sodom and Gomorrah. He offers a way out to Lot and his family, those who have been faithful to him. He, he offers a way out. And we see that uh, in Jericho, for example. When they march around seven times and they blow the trumpet and the, the, the walls of Jericho come tumbling down, come tumbling down, Rahab and her family are saved through the destruction of Jericho. God rescues them through the judgment. And we see that, we see a glimpse of that here uh, in verses four and following where the Kenites are rescued. Saul tells them, get out of Dodge, okay? I'm gonna destroy the Amalekites, but you were kind to the people of Israel. In fact, uh, if you follow the storyline, Exodus 17, the Amalekites come against the people of Israel when they're weary in the desert and God gives them victory. And then Exodus 18, the Kenites, we saw last week in the book of Judges that J.L. comes from the, the line of the Kenites. They were kind to the people of Israel instead of attacking them. This is Moses' father-in-law, his, his in-laws. They were kind to the people of Israel. And so Saul says, listen, you were kind to us. And so God's gonna be kind to you and you're gonna avoid the judgment that's about to come down on the Amalekites. And so over and over and over again, we see God, yes, he's pouring out judgment, but God also pours out mercy and he rescues people through the judgment. But if he's so merciful, why in the world would he judge the innocent? Why would he say kill the nursing babies? Here's why. Because God loves the world. So let me explain this to you. Saul, the king of Israel, if you go read the Old Testament, Saul started well, okay? He did a good job in the early part of his reign, but he falls here in 1 Samuel 15 because he wants to have high approval ratings. And so because he wants high approval ratings, he half obeys God. God says, destroy all the Amalekites, but he saves King Agag, and he saves the best of the sheep and the oxen, because he says the people, that's what the people wanted. And here's the deal we learn in 1 Samuel 15. Half obedience to God is full disobedience. Half obedience to God is full disobedience, and so he spares Agag, and because of this, as we read, God removes the kingship from Saul, and he's gonna give it to David. And so Samuel comes and tells him, you're no, you're no longer gonna be king. God has removed the, the kingdom from you. When, Saul, when Samuel turns to leave, Saul grabs his robe, he tears a part of it, 
And Samuel says, look, the way you tore my robe, the, the Lord has torn the kingdom from you. He's going to give it to somebody else because of Saul's disobedience. And then Samuel tries to finish what Saul did not, as we read, by hacking Agag to pieces, very violent language, at Gilgal. Now, again, the reason why God has given this command is because of John 3.16, because God loves the world. And the reason why God has given this command, and let me explain this to you so you can um, understand what I mean when I say John 3.16, is uh, to give you an illustration because of the movie Godfather 2. Okay? Now, that may seem weird, and, and I'm not like, you know, endorsing the Godfather trilogy or whatever, but they are pretty great movies. But if you've not seen Godfather 2, it's been out for like 50 years. So, spoiler alert, I'm going to tell you part of what happens in it, okay? In the movie Godfather 2, the Godfather 2 is um, the movie kind of parallels... Michael Corleone, who's the Al Pacino figure, the godfather, at the same age as his dad, uh, who is uh, Vito, and uh, who's played by Robert De Niro in Godfather 2. And so it kind of parallels him at the same age. But here's what happens in Godfather 2. In the town of Corleone, Sicily, okay, there is a, a, a godfather, a mafia mobster guy named Don Ciccio, okay? And Don Ciccio kills uh, the, the father of the Andalini family, okay? Which is what Vito and Michael come from. They come from the Andalini family. So he kills him, and he kills his mom, and then Vito escapes in a basket and comes to America and comes to New York. Okay, that's what this, this uh, Godfather 2 uh, tells us. And so when Vito, who's and Vito Andolini, comes to America, he adopts the name Vito Corleone from the town that he comes from. And then he grows up. He's a little boy when he escaped from Sicily. He grows up and he becomes a mafia boss and he becomes very powerful and he becomes, you know, this, this incredible, you know, mobster. And then here's what happens. He goes back to Sicily once he's become very wealthy and powerful. And he goes to Don Ciccio's house and he tries to, to like work out this trade deal with him. And Don Ciccio tell, says to him, he says, okay, your name's Vito Corleone. That's the name of this town. What was your given name? And Vito says, my given name was Vito Andolini. And then he takes out a knife and he stabs Don Ciccio and he kills him and he escapes. Okay? And so you say, what does that have to do with 1 Samuel 15? Well, what that has to do with 1 Samuel 15 is the Bible's telling us that these nursing babies, just like Vito Andolini, if they are allowed to grow up and become men and become powerful, they will try to destroy the Israelites. And so because God 
wants to make sure that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, comes from the line of the Israelites. He doesn't want these nursing babies to grow up so they can destroy the Israelites. Because if they do, then there's going to be no David. There's going to be no Solomon. There's going to be no Hezekiah. There's going to be no Josiah. There's going to be no Mary. There's going to be no Jesus, which means you're going to go to hell and I'm going to go to hell. And so because God does not want that to happen because he wants to bring the Savior into the world and because he wants to preserve the line of the Messiah to make sure that he comes, he pours out violence on the people who are threatening the people of Israel. Now, if you say to me, John, I think that's an exaggeration. I don't think that the Amalekites, if those babies grew up, would do that. And so I don't think that God had to do that. Well, here's my answer to you. Have you ever read the book of Esther? Okay, have you ever read the book of Esther? Go over to the book of Esther. Esther chapter three. Okay, listen to what the Bible says in Esther chapter three. Uh, verses 5 and 6 and following. If you don't have a, a Bible, you'll see this on the screen. Here's what the Bible says in Esther chapter 3. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Look down at verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written. The king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples and to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the instruction to destroy, kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adder, and to plunder their goods." So let me explain to you just very briefly what's happening here in Esther. You have, in the book of Esther, is a new Saul, Mordecai, who's from the tribe of Benjamin, who's from the family of Kish, just like Saul, and a new Agag, who is Haman, who is an 
Agagite, who is a descendant of Agag, that are going to war with one another. And Haman, the descendant of Agag, seeks to annihilate the Jews. All of them, the adults and the children and the nursing infants, but he is defeated by a descendant of Saul, Mordecai, and his niece, Esther, who brings about the defeat of Haman. We see in this story that, uh, that Mordecai will not honor Haman, the Agagite, probably because he knows the story. He knows what's going on all the way back from 1 Samuel. And so he refuses to bow down to Haman, and eventually Haman is defeated by Mordecai and Esther. Here's what we see in the Bible. The Bible tells us at the end, Revelation chapter 12, tells us that Satan is a dragon who is trying to destroy the people of Israel and trying to destroy the line of the Messiah. And we see this throughout the Bible, all the way back. Pharaoh trying to kill all the male babies. Haman trying to annihilate the Jews. Herod trying to kill the male babies there in the New Testament. All throughout the Bible, the dragon, Satan, is trying to destroy the line of the Messiah. But God is defeating Satan, defeating the dragon, is preserving the line of the Messiah so that he brings about Jesus, who is the Savior of the world. That's the story of the book of Esther. And that's the story of 1 Samuel 15. God orders the slaughter of the Amalekites. And he orders the slaughter of King Agag in order to protect the line of the Messiah in order to save the world. And so Mordecai and Esther finish the job that Saul left unfinished. What happens in the book of Esther is uh, Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman, so Haman's mad. He wants to annihilate all the Jews. But Esther goes into the king and, and explains how Mordecai had saved the king's life from a threat and so he's going to pour out blessing on Mordecai, and the plot of Haman is revealed, and Haman is hung on the gallows that he had set up to hang Mordecai and to annihilate the Jews. And so his plan falls back on his own head. That's what we see in the New Testament. Satan moves Judas to betray Jesus, to get him crucified, but his plan falls back on him, crushing his own head, because Jesus, in his crucifixion and resurrection, defeats the serpent. And so that's what we see here in 1 Samuel, and what we see in uh, Esther, is that God so loves the world that he makes sure that the Christ will come, and he defeats any enemy that stands against it so that Jesus can bring salvation to the world. Now, what does that mean for us? Let me just explain this very quickly. What does this mean for us practically? Here's the first thing it means. You need John 3.16. You need John 3.16. You need to know that God loves you, that God sent his son to die for you so that you do not have to receive his judgment You do not have to perish, 
but you can receive eternal life if you will believe in Jesus Christ. And so anybody who puts their faith and trust in Jesus will be saved from the judgment to come. Second thing we need to know is this. You need to refuse retaliation. Refuse retaliation. Our desire for justice and our desire for people who have wronged us to get what is coming to them is a good and godly desire. But our desire to be the ones who pour that out is an ungodly desire. The Bible says, we talked about this last week, vengeance is mine, God says. I will repay. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. We are called not to retaliate. We are called to pour out mercy on our enemies and to trust that if they never repent and they never confess what they've done to us, then God will set things right. In the Old Testament, he uses his firstborn son, the nation of Israel, to pour out judgment on the people who are against him. In the New Testament, he uses his firstborn son, Jesus, to pour out judgment on his enemies. He doesn't ask us to do it. He does not need our help. And so we do not retaliate. We forgive, we pray for, we show kindness to our enemies. And the third thing we need to know is this. You need to engage in mission. Engage in mission. Our role is not to judge the world. Our role is the Great Commission. Go into all the earth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you and I will be with you to the end of the age. That is our role. And God's commission to his people, to us, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth did not start in Matthew 28. It actually predates even the time of Christ. Even in the Old Testament, we see over and over and over again, we looked at this in the book of Jonah, for example, that God has a heart for the entire world. And he wants all peoples to come to know him as Savior. If you go read the entire book of Esther, God rescues Persians who turn in faith to the one true God. If you go look in the book of 1 Samuel, we see that God rescues Kenites who are kind to the people of the one true God. If you go look in Joshua, God rescues Rahab because she puts her faith in the one true God. All the way back in Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, I'm going to use you and the nation that you birth to bless all the nations of the world. And that is our calling. There are Amalekites and Canaanites and Thai and Kurds and Arabs and Mixteco and Americans who need to hear God loves you and you don't have to perish if you will believe in the son that he sent. And here's what we see. God's plan to rescue the entire world will happen. That's not a question. Like it's, it's going to happen. 
Revelation chapter five, Revelation chapter seven. John sees a multitude in heaven from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The question is not whether or not God is going to do it. The question is, what part are you going to play in it? We see in the book of Esther, Mordecai comes to his niece, Esther, and says, listen, you need to go to the king and appeal to him to rescue the Jews. And then he says this, he goes, look, if you don't do it, God will provide rescue from some other means. It's gonna happen. There's, there's no way that Haman's gonna be able to wipe out all the Jews. God's gonna rescue his people. That's not the question. The question is, maybe God raised you up, Esther, for such a time as this to be used for his glory to rescue his people. That's the same thing that God says to us. Listen, I'm gonna save, the Lord says, I'm gonna save people from every nation on the planet. That's not a question. The question is, are you gonna play any part in my commission? Are you gonna receive the blessing of being engaged in the mission that I have called you to? And so why does God command violence in the Old Testament? God commands violence in the Old Testament because he loves the entire world. Because he wants to save the entire world. And so if you don't want to miss out on that, then get involved in what God is doing in the world. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to I'm gonna pray, we're gonna sing a song, and then we're gonna take the Lord's Supper together. We're gonna to take of the bread and of the cup. And so here's our response time this evening. Our response time is this. If you are a believer in Jesus, and you've made that public through baptism, then we invite you to take of the Lord's Supper. Hopefully you grabbed elements when you came in this evening. And so if you're a believer in Jesus and you made that public in baptism, then we invite you to take from the supper. And so we're gonna sing here in just a second and I'll come back up and instruct us to take the elements together at the Lord's table. If you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus, or you've not made that public in baptism, then you say, well, John, why are you excluding me? Why are you keeping me from what you guys are doing? Here's, here's what I wanna say to you. We don't want to exclude you. We don't wanna keep you from this. We want this to be the last time that you don't take the Lord's Supper. We want this meal to be an invitation to you to give your life to Jesus, to trust Jesus for salvation, to be obedient in baptism. And so if that's you, at the end of the service, we'll have pastors down here at the front who would love to talk to you. And if you need to give your life to Jesus, then give your life to Jesus so that you can be welcomed into the family of God. Maybe you got 
maybe parents, you've got children who are here in the room with you tonight. Here's what the Bible tells us in the Old Testament. The Bible tells us that when they took the Passover meal, that the children would ask, why are we doing this? And the parents would explain to them about what God had done for his people. And so if you have children in the room who are saying, man, dad, mom, I want to take this. This is a chance for you to explain to them, honey, you're not a believer in Jesus yet, but someday you will be, and then you'll get to take it. And this is a chance for you to explain the gospel, to explain what Jesus has done for your children. And so this, this supper is an important time for us because it's a reminder of what God has done for us in Jesus' death and resurrection to save us from our sins. And so as we celebrate this, if you are a believer in Jesus, if you are somebody who's made that public in baptism, this is a time for you to, as we sing, to praise the Lord for what he's done, to confess any unconfessed sin in your life, and then I'll come back up here in just a few minutes and instruct you to take this so we can worship the Lord for what he has done for us. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would use this praise time and you would use this supper to call our attention to what you have done for us. Because God, you love the world in this way, that you sent your only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. So Lord, we thank you that Jesus gave of his body and he shed his own blood so that we could be welcomed into your family and welcomed to your table. And Father, I pray right now for anyone in this room or anyone watching online who's not part of the family of God, that they would not walk out of this room tonight. They would not log off of their computer tonight without settling their faith, their trust in Jesus Christ and becoming part of the family of God. Father, use this time to bring great glory and honor to you. And Lord, use this time to point us to what Christ has done for us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand to your feet? We're gonna sing. This is a time for you to reflect on what God has done for you.